0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Courtside with Keenan. We are in Season 2, Episode 7 today, and today's guest needs no introduction other than simply the voice of the Wisconsin Badgers. Everybody just take a listen.
1: Can't believe I'm going to say it, but here it comes. The Wisconsin Badgers are going to the Final Four. and At the Cole Center, and it's Deja Vu in Madison.
0: Wow, did that just give me goosebumps? Holy man. So, if you haven't guessed it yet, our guest today is none other than the incomparable Matt LaPay. Matt has been doing Wisconsin Badger football and basketball for 30 plus years, and in the last five or six years, he has also done TV broadcasts for the Milwaukee Brewers, filling in for Brian Anderson. So more than likely you know his voice and he does an awesome interview, so I hope you enjoy. So ladies and gentlemen, here is Matt LaPay. All right, welcome Matt to Courtside with Keenan. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Well, right now it's getting close to summertime and baseball's underway and right now you're with the brewers so talk a little bit about the brewers first
1: yeah that's something that uh, actually uh, fell out of the sky and right into my lap um in 2014 they were looking for someone to to step in brian anderson is is, as we all know uh getting more and more opportunities at the national level uh with, with turner sports specifically with the nba and um some regular season uh, Major League Baseball assignments, so uh, the Brewers were looking for for someone, and um, I, I guess I was the convenient answer, even though I had done next to no baseball in my adult life, with uh, handful, <laughs> just a handful of games, really, um, maybe a little bit more than that, but nothing in the last 20 plus years before I started working for them. So I I, I fill in. Um, I've done as many as close to 60 uh, games uh, for a few years, and I've needed to uh, dial that back. So it'll be between 25 and 30 this season, but it's fun working with Bill Schroeder and and everybody involved over there. Sophia Minnert, it's, it's a great group of the the producers, directors, everybody that, that uh, tries to make us look and sound good and the technical crew. So uh, we do have a good time.
0: That's awesome. So why don't we go back to the very beginning? I know you uh, are an Ohio boy. So kind of tell your story from from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which is about an hour north of uh, of Cincinnati. So I was a I grew up a big Cincinnati Reds fan, a, a Bengals fan, which can can be painful for those who uh, <laughs> <laughs> follow the NFL. But uh, they they did have some they had some good teams. Uh, you know, watched them play in the in the Super Bowl a couple of times. Um. But a big sports fan. Loved the college game. I was a big uh, Dayton Flyers basketball fan, University of Dayton Flyers. Um, they had a legendary coach there named Don Donaher, And there's a pretty good tradition of, of basketball over there. Good high school basketball. And um, and yes, in my former life, I was an Ohio State football fan. So uh, <laughs> <attended> <laughs> We're school. not going to hold that against right, you. Right, yeah. attended attended school there at uh, the Ohio State University, as they like to call it to annoy sure. everybody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, my playing career, I knew wasn't going to last very long, uh, love sports and, uh, always thought I had a, uh, a decent IQ for the, uh, for the sports that I played, which for me was primarily baseball and basketball. Um, but I had a, had a couple of nasty injuries along the way and, and general lack of talent. Uh, <laughs> that I knew that would prevent me from playing at a, at a high major college program or anything beyond that, but. I uh, always knew I wanted to be around sports in some capacity and I thought thought announcing was a, would be a pretty cool way to make a living and it has yes. been. and it has been.
0: So you you played some high school sports and do you think that's kind of what was the whole idea of getting into broadcasting?
1: Actually, I thought about it um well before high school. I uh, I always thought when I, when I was growing up uh, a couple of years on the radio in the early 70s, Al Michaels was the the radio voice for the Cincinnati Reds before he became nationally known for uh, uh, Sunday night football and he did Monday night football and, and the Olympic
0: hockey. The Olympics, game. Right?
1: Miracle on ice. Yeah, maybe the greatest moment in American sports history. Um, hard to believe that's more than 40 years ago now. Uh, but I, I always thought that would be, almost like stealing money to, to be able to be around sports all the time. I thought about coaching as well, but I figured I wasn't good enough to play, probably not smart enough to coach. So uh, being a broadcaster was the next best thing, but, but loved it. You know, love playing baseball, basketball when I could um, just, just love being around athletics and the competition that goes with it.
0: Okay. So I read an article where you said that way back in your childhood, you used to practice broadcasting when you were playing electric football is that true
1: it is and I, I tell people here since those old electric football games you really you couldn't pass very very much you know the, the quarterbacks were it was just kind of a weird uh, how they how they put those <laughs> games together so i thought that sure. was my that was my prelude to being around the badgers because they run <laughs> the ball a lot too so, but yeah i just i was one of those geeks who collected uh all the teams uh, uh yeah it was like late that was like seven or eight years old i think when i when i got the thing so um yeah i i still actually i to this day i have it i have no idea whether it works but that is the one childhood toy that has remained in my possession for all these years
0: oh well, that's pretty cool
1: <laughs> it's so it's different I, I thought i was strange when i was doing that but then the more people you meet in this business the more you realize that strange is normal <laughs>
0: that that's makes sense so, who who are some of your influences early on and in in, um, in broadcasting, and possibly like maybe a mentor or somebody that kind of got you got you going?
1: Yeah, on a on a more local or regional level, following the Reds, Al Michaels was someone, and then and then Marty Brenneman, who just retired uh, at the end of the two thousand nineteen season, uh Hall of Fame radio voice of the Reds, and it, it's been kind of cool in, in working with the Brewers. I've had the chance to get to know Marty uh, at least a little bit over the last few years. Uh, uh, um, those were guys that, that I, I enjoyed listening to uh, quite a bit. I remember when I was in college, I, I visited with Marty, who's always been known for uh, paying forward, uh, helping young broadcasters. Uh, Brian Anderson could go on for probably hours about that. Um, his, his meeting with Marty when, when uh, Brian was in the minor leagues and, and trying to find a way to break through um, so I, I don't know. A Mentor might be exaggerating a bit, but it, w- it was a mentor without Marty knowing it, because I was listening, okay. call the games, and just just admired how he went about his business nationally. Uh, for me, growing up, Kirk Gowdy was one of the one of the main voices of almost everything that mattered: uh, Super Bowls, Rose Bowls, uh, you know, college hoops, the whole the whole deal. He, he did a baseball obviously. Um, so he, he was a voice that, uh, when I was growing up, you didn't have ESPN, uh, until the late seventies. So you basically had the three networks plus PBS. So you would, you know, if it was a national game on NBC, there was a good chance that Kurt Gowdy was going to be calling it. So sure. Guys like that. Um, and there were others, Keith Jackson, uh, with college football primarily as well, but, but, Those are guys that I didn't necessarily want to, you know, be the next fill in the blank, but you could just you might be able to pick up tidbits from from various broadcasters, either locally or nationally, that you can incorporate into doing things the way you like to do them.
0: Okay. So you graduate from Ohio State. You're thinking what's next in my life? How did you end up in Madison, Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, it was. I'll try to give you the shorter version of that because I, I worked in the Columbus market, um, and it had nothing to do with play-by-play. It was one of those um, you know, top 40 FM radio uh, morning shows that, that I was a part of, although I did get to cover uh, a, a Rose Bowl game. It was the first time I had been out there in person, uh, the 1985 Ohio State-USC Rose Bowl. Chris Spielman. Okay. Uh, was playing for the Buckeyes. Jack Del Rio was a really good linebacker at USC. Um, obviously, went on to a a, a coaching career, and is uh, still in a. He's been a head coach, I know, uh, and I believe he's an assistant these days. Um, but I, w- I worked in Columbus, Ohio, and then, as often happens when uh, formats change or management changes. Um, I was a budget cut, apparently, the $12,000 a year I was making there <laughs> was blowing their their salary cap. So but I really it was probably the best thing that could have happened because I wanted to get into play by play. And to do that, you were uh, in my case, I was going to have to go to a to a small market, which I did uh, a brief stop in Athens, Ohio to be a news director. But then I worked in a little town called Piqua, Ohio, P-I-Q-U-A, where I had a chance to not only play what they called the beautiful music of yesteryear, which is a way of (laughs) saying elevator music, but I had a chance to call high school football, high school basketball and some American Legion uh, baseball games, but it was primarily the the high school uh, sports scene with football and basketball. And that was a great opportunity for me to, to cut my teeth and, make a million mistakes as opposed to a hundred mistakes that I make now Uh, (laughs) make a million mistakes there. And you just realize, and you find out in a hurry, the passion of, of the fans who follow high school basketball, um, you know, obviously parents will be at the games as much as they can, but they'll want recordings of the games. And a lot of the folks in the community will listen to the games. So it was, it was great fun.
0: So how did you end up in Madison?
1: I was uh, they had a there was an old broadcasting magazine back when we used to actually hold a magazine in our hands as opposed to looking at our phones or our iPads or or MacBooks. Um, there was a uh, job opening in Madison, Wisconsin for a afternoon sports drive anchor and uh, a the basketball play by play job for the Badgers. And but huh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, okay kind of cold up there and not that it's <laughs> balmy all the time in Dayton, Ohio, but uh, a little further north. So on a whim, I, I sent them uh, an old cas- a cassette tape, which is what we were rolling with back in the late 80s. Sure. Uh, resume and um, and everything. The planets aligned. Uh, they, they liked what they heard, uh, flew up for an interview and offered me the job. And that was June of 1988, that I moved from Ohio to, uh, to Madison, Wisconsin. I've been here ever since. Okay. So
0: when you came, basically, the band was probably the biggest draw at football games and basketball games. By far. So what do you credit? I mean, I think in basketball, at least in my opinion, it was the Michael Finley years with Tracy Webster and Richard they kind of got the ball rolling. Would you Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, in terms of being a, a team that you thought could get into the NCAA tournament. Yes, there were good teams. I'm always, a, I'm a little careful because, um, you know, like Rick Olson was a terrific player and it just wasn't quite that window where the team was good enough to be in the NCAA tournament. Rick was more mid-80s. Um, I will always... Uh, Keenan, have a soft spot for the first team that I had a chance to call games for, the 88-89 Wisconsin Badger team. That was Danny Jones and and Tom Malasky, Kirk okay. Portman. Um, they just missed making the NCAA tournament. The, the scheduled draw was brutal. The trips that they had to take at the end of the season, going to Indiana the second to last game. Uh, playing a Bob Knight coach team, you know, if it was close, you weren't going to win it because you weren't going to get a call right. <laughs> like in the game. And then, uh, but anyway, that, that was a team that they had, they beat Michigan. That was a year Michigan won the national championship. They hammered Illinois. Uh, they were doing some things that really got the fan base excited, and and maybe was an indicator to to the administration to everybody that basketball could be relevant. Uh, at, at Wisconsin because it was, it took, for many folks, an afterthought. They had the faithful 5,000, as they referred to, you know, which would be about the size of the crowd uh, on a nightly basis for Wisconsin <laughs> right. basketball. But, but I, I get what you're saying, and I certainly don't disagree with it um, because that next step was was Tracy, who is one of my favorite people. and I've got a long list of favorites, I guess, but he's, sure. he's absolutely on it. Um, And Finley and Richard, that group uh, that broke through and got to the NCAA tournament in 94, that's uh, really kind of the foundation in in my mind to what the program is now.
0: So when did football
1: come into play? My first year, the the guy who hired me is a fellow named Chris Moore, who does uh, some work for CBS Radio, uh, and he'll step in at WFAN in New York, a uh, very well-known sports talk station uh, in New York City. Uh, and, and after he hired me, uh, about a month or two later, he told me he was going to get hired by the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. Chris was the primary hockey voice for our station, WTSO, in Madison, and, uh, and he's done a lot of work and, a couple of NHL teams, been at ESPN, so on and so forth. And in those days, there were four different originating broadcasts for Wisconsin football. There were two different uh, broadcasts for basketball, um, but it was it, it really the athletic department was kind of a mom and pop shop. Quite frankly, back in those years and stations, the originating stations would pay a very small fee and they would have access to a booth and they would call games for their stations. So I called, the games at 88 starting, I think game two, Chris called the opener. I had game two and I worked with Larry, my who played for the Badgers and, and, and spent a fair amount of years in the NFL as well. And that team won one game all year. It was, that was Paul Chris senior year. Um, right. That was the transition period. If you remember, uh, Dave, yes. uh, you know, died of a heart attack. Jim Hillis stepped in um, for a year as an interim coach. And then, the university hired Don Morton in the 1988. My first year was <laughs> year two for Don. And that was, that was rough. That, that, that was rough. Around, yeah, it was around the time that fans moved on from being angry to just not caring. So <laughs> that was, uh, I felt because there were good players on that team. You know, plain oh, sure. recruited players. There just weren't enough of them. Uh, by '88 and '89, and and even Barry's first year in '90, so um, I always I feel bad badly for some of those guys because they deserved better, but they were just caught in a time of transition. So it was a long story. A little shorter. I was the play-by-play <laughs> announcer in '88, and then it became exclusive rights, and uh, WTMJ had the rights. Jim Irwin was the the radio voice for a few years, and then Brian Manthe as well. I was always a part of the broadcast, but I didn't pick up the play-by-play for football again until 1994, and I've been in that spot ever since.
0: So, so you mentioned Barry Alvarez. Obviously, he announced his retirement recently, and what, what did he mean to you? What did he mean to the university? I mean, can you put it into words?
1: Yeah, it's uh, in a lot of ways, you could say in terms of UW athletics, he's meant everything. And I will also add that the chancellor, Donna Shalala, is a critical player in the growth of of Wisconsin football and Wisconsin athletics. Her philosophy is, look, you're trying to be world class and name that department at the university. And and her point was, why can't we try to be that way in athletics? It was important to her. And that was a departure from some previous uh, uh, philosophies at, at the university in the chancellor's office. So that was important, but then, but you still have to have someone to steer the ship and and Barry Alvarez came in and and did just that. Uh, I mean, he first had to try to get people to care uh, by people. I'm talking about the campus community and, and he and his staff, it was hit the ground running, uh, not just in recruiting players, but in trying to drum up excitement with fans across the state, donors, so on and so forth. Um, You know, he came in, uh, Feeling pretty good about himself after his <laughs> his run at, at, as an assistant at Iowa and certainly at Notre Dame being the defensive coordinator of a national championship team of the Irish. Uh, but he was exactly what Wisconsin needed. I mean, he, the, the right place, right time, right person. Um, because he had a definite plan, and you're either with him or you're against him. If you're with him, let's go. If you're against him, there's the door. And, and that was – absolutely what what Badger football needed and then as we saw over the course of time it it became something that that has been department-wide you have a lot of programs here that are doing very very well
0: well it's pretty well documented his press conference when he said you better get your season tickets now because in a while you're not going to be able to get them yeah who who actually believed that was true and sure enough it Became true.
1: I think a lot of people wanted to believe it because they were starved for someone to come in with a plan and, and, a, and a, at least someone who was part of a track record, a big part of a track record of getting big things done. Um, you know, Iowa had had its way with Wisconsin on the football field for a long time. Notre Dame is Notre Dame uh, national championship team in, in 1988. Um, But I also would tell you that a lot of us who were standing there that day when he said that were were thinking, does this guy know what he's walked into here? You know, he said they they announced the crowd at the last game of the 89 season at 20-some thousand. It was maybe half that. Um, So there were a lot of season tickets to be had back then. but, (laughs) But people at the time were just desperate for someone to come in with great confidence. And Barry Alvarez is many things, including someone with great confidence, and, and it fit perfectly.
0: Well, it did. His his swagger just kind of just carried everybody and just drew people to him.
1: No doubt. Uh, he, he built himself as a player's coach and a, and a great motivator, and I think it's turned out to be exactly that. Uh, the, the number of players who I think to this day still reach out um, and, and, you know, you, it, when you're a player, it's coach player relationship. But then over time, um, long after they're done playing, it becomes a, a friendship, almost a, almost a father figure type of uh, type of relationship. So um, I, I think the, the player, when, when he came in, you know, let's be honest, there were some of these guys, he would have loved to have coached for longer than he had the chance to. I mean, you had players that were going into their, you know, like their senior year um, in 1990 uh, or maybe a junior, senior uh, at that time, 90-91. He would have loved to have had you know, some guys for four years. It didn't turn out to be the case, but he he wanted to make clear to guys like Don Davy and Troy Vincent uh, and some others that you know when the team, he said, look, we're going to go to a Rose Bowl game and, and we're going to get you, we're going to get you some jewelry uh, commemorating what happened. And even though you're not going to be a you know you're not going to be a player, your eligibility will be expired by then. So I, I think just the confidence. Um, you know there was some realism too. I mean, he, he tells the story of uh, one of the first meetings uh, before the season opener, um, and and he asked he asked his players, um, you know, how good do you think we can be? What do you want this season to be? And somebody, you know, one of a, a big old offensive linemen says, "We're gonna, you know, bleep bleep bleep, we're gonna go win the Rose Bowl." We're gonna and Barry said, "Hold on, um, I know what Rose Bowl teams look like." And you're not quite there yet, so let's try to keep it, try to keep it try to keep it real. Uh, that first year, they only won one game, but it's a little bit deceiving. Now they were outmanned, you could say, on paper, week in and week out. But you know, a lot of times, I would say more often than not, they hung in there at least for a half, and then well into the second half. But eventually, they would just wear down. But the enthusiasm of that team, you know, those who stuck with it, you know, a lot of players didn't early. Uh, but those who did, uh, you could tell the record was what it was, but something was different with the program compared to what was there previously. It had to be different, and it was different in a very good way. They really felt like they were heading in the right direction.
0: We'll bring it in bevel and and Moss and Fletcher in the backfield, and I just you you you're right. you could feel it. it was it was coming and and they were they were going to be good.
1: Yeah, I think that, that first recruiting class, which they had to put together in about a month, uh, there were a lot of key components uh, of that first class that led to the, the Big Ten and the Rose Bowl championship. I mean, you get, you know, you get guys like a Lamar uh, you know, just, just players over time, a Reggie Holt, a Carlos Fowler, uh, Lee DeRamus, uh J.C. Dawkins, uh, the, the list goes deeper than that. Mike Thompson out of Portage. Uh, just, a, a, you know, they what he wanted to do was put the wall around the state as best he possibly could. And I think that it turned out to be a pretty effective wall and then go wherever you need to. If it's East Coast, wherever to uh, to get the quicker hands and feet. And And it was a plan that worked out very, very well.
0: Sure. So what does a typical game day look like for you on a football Saturday
1: I, I well I, I really enjoy I always tell people that one of the favorite one of my favorite parts of a game day and especially a home game but if there's a big road game too but especially a home game is the drive into the stadium and I'll get there generally about three hours before kickoff and you know there are some games if they're the lesser height game so to speak where you can get through, you know, pretty quickly and I can get my parking spot and I'm good to go. But if you have some big game, if it's a primetime game or just a, you know, one of those showcase games uh, on a Saturday afternoon, if it's a Michigan coming in Ohio state, whatever the case, just the, the you know, the smell of the barbecues going on, the brats and the people milling about uh, around union South and, and just the areas around the camp Randall neighborhood, uh, you know something special is going on i mean it's it's the biggest party in the state and you get to have six or seven of those every year in madison and I, I try to give myself a couple of minutes on the drive to just take it in and, and you know look around uh, at, it's one of those times i don't mind a stoplight where i can just kind of take a look around and watch people go through their pregame routine if you will and then when i when i get to the stadium it's Inside, when I get in the booth, the stadium itself is going to be still fairly empty, right? Um, but I still like to give myself a moment or so to, to look around and just say, what are we going to see today? Because you don't know. You know, maybe, maybe the game isn't overly exciting, but then again, maybe it will be. Maybe you'll see something you've never seen before. And then... After that, you know, you start to converse with, uh, in my case, uh, my counterpart from whatever uh, school that the Badgers are playing that day. If I know the TV announcers from ESPN or Fox or wherever, um, you know, we'll visit with those guys for for a little while, and then you settled in. We our network pregame show lasts two hours. Uh, I don't have to do much in the first hour, but. I'm there for the second hour of it, and then the game, and then the post game, which takes for me another hour, hour and a half. It's a long day, but it's a fun day. Sure.
0: So, is that kind of similar with basketball and and your time with the Brewers too? With baseball, do you have commit basically a a full day?
1: Pretty much, game? yeah, pretty much. With with basketball, maybe not quite. You know, two and a half hours or so. I'll get there before game. Uh, uh, Coach Guard and I will will. In in a normal year, record his pregame interview uh, just outside their locker room about an hour and a half before tip off. This year was was different for all the obvious reasons. We did our interviews via Zoom, and it it could be an hour and a half for the game, or it could be six hours, just whatever whatever sure. worked best. Um, but again, you meet with the opposing broadcaster and you know the TV folks, and it, it's you know, part of it's social and part of it. You know, you try to. We try to help them out with any questions that they might have. Uh, not going to give away any kind of state secrets, but it can help them out a little bit. And uh, just tell them um, on personnel and, and the way guys are playing and, and all of that. And with basketball, the atmospheres are more intimate. Where we sit courtside, uh, you know, you turn around and you, you see people who are sitting in the first couple of rows who you've seen in those spots for years and years. So you say hello to them real quick and, and there you go. We're, we're on an hour uh, we do a one hour pregame show and about 20 25 minutes postgame. So, um, okay. it's, it's a good chunk of the day or night, but as I say, it it beats working.
0: <laughs> so, going back to pre COVID times, how involved do you get with? I mean, do you go to practices and what? Yes. Do yeah, you, do you get to know the players on a personal level?
1: Yes, in a normal year. Um, and I was at, at practices from a distance this season. Normally, the the, uh, the general media, um, they're, they're usually not permitted to go into the practices, but we're, you know, on the game broadcast, they, they know we're not going to be uh, tweeting uh, injury updates or that type of thing. But sure. with football, watch it from a distance. Um, and then basketball, much the same. I, I'll be in that lower bowl sometimes at the top row or, um, you know, the TV table was set up. Uh, it's a little bit off the floor this year. Um, and so you're still comfortably away from, from any of the players. So, uh, you, you, you try to exercise common sense because the last thing any of us in the broadcast team wanted to do was be that guy who, you know, we you got fear it. of contracting COVID, but for us, the bigger fear was spreading it, uh, to anyone, our, our wives or, but but you don't, you know, you wouldn't want a coach to get it, who gives it to a player. And then all of a sudden you got a problem. So, um, it, it it with basketball it worked. We were able to. You know, Greg and I would talk to each other after a practice from from a safe distance. Um, it was hard with players. You, know, you do Zoom interviews, but you're you know those a lot of times in my line of work you, you do the interview stuff, but you also like just visiting with them a little bit um, when you're not recording. And you, you can pick right. up, you can pick up a thing or two. Again, you're not you're not going to give away any you know, any big secrets, but there's there could be a, a nugget or two that could be helpful. So um that's probably one of the things that I missed um more than anything. You know, I know we were lucky to have a season. We'll always be grateful for that. Um but we didn't travel with them and and which in some ways I've been doing this a while. It's kind of nice on a road game to <laughs> be back home uh, right. an hour after the game but you still you, you miss some of the camaraderie that you have with with the coaches and some of the players but if that's the worst thing we had to deal with you know calling a game off a monitor and and not traveling um, i don't think anybody would or should feel sorry for us
0: so i know there's been hundreds of players that have been putting on the badger uniform in the last 30 years who are some of the characters that you just really were drawn to and, and loved to talk to and, and cover.
1: with uh, well, football, Corey Raymer, who was a center on the first Rose Bowl team, who was just hilarious. Um, he, he loved, he took his craft seriously. He didn't take himself seriously. Um, he went into the, into the UW athletics hall of fame uh, several years ago. I mean, he was a terrific center, part of a great offensive line at the first Rose Bowl team, Joe Panos, Joe Rudolph, uh, you know Mike Verstegen, Steve Stark, and that was a that was a big time offensive line. But Corey Corey was was funny. You know he could just uh, he could get in a little dig if he wanted to, or just make fun of himself. And he saw, at one time a writer asked him what uh, what his favorite nickname was, or what would he nickname himself, and he said, "Well, it has to start with dumb, <laughs> and then, then <laughs> fill, in, fill in the blank, something like that." But he but trust me, uh, he's not dumb. Uh, so he was, a, he was a fun guy. Um, i trying to think there, there have been been quite a few of them over the years. Um, let's see. Peter Kahn's uh, something about offensive linemen. Cons <laughs> is a funny guy. John Moffat, um, a, a really good dude. Um I wouldn't put him in the category of character, but someone I, I admire. <laughs> I
0: was gonna say his character maybe was yeah. A but bit. Now, I'm,
1: I'm talking about someone else here too. Uh, Chris Borland is someone I, I I admire. Now he's a you know uh, he's a guy who's a great linebacker here, just an outstanding linebacker and was he had a good rookie season in the NFL with San Francisco. And then he stepped away from football for concerns about concussions and the lingering effects. And, uh, but he's someone that w- when you talk to him, um, I mean, you could, you could always talk to him uh, j- just casual conversation, but when it was on the record, he would give thoughtful answers. He was not the cliche guy. Um, so he, he's someone who, you know, I really, again, I wouldn't say a character, funny guy, um, necessarily, but, but someone who was, was really thoughtful. Um, more recently, Jonathan Taylor, a terrific kid. Um, again, it's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, crack you up laughter type of, type of a guy, but again, someone who was really thoughtful. With basketball, um, Andy Kilbride was a character, uh, a good guard at Wisconsin, I would say that. Um, always enjoyed Tim Locum, um, late '80s, early '90s. Still the, uh, still the statistically shoot
0: it best, from deep, right?
1: The best three point shooter statistically Wisconsin has ever had. I know it was closer, the line was closer uh, then, but he could he could stroke it. Um, other other characters. Well, I mean, more recent years, uh, you know, the the '14, the 2014-15 Badgers, uh, you know, guys with Kaminsky. Uh, Decker, uh, you know Nigel Hayes had a lot of people laughing there for a couple of years. So um, the good news is when you ask that question, um, I can't really tell you many guys who I just didn't particularly care for. Um, they always, they, they brought in, I mean, no one bats a thousand in this regard, but they brought in a lot of really good people. And I think there's something to be said for that. Everybody wants to win Every game that you, that you can, uh, I get that, but I, I just like the, the type of, of person they have brought here over the years. They've consistently been really good in that area. They talk about it all the time. They want the academic, the, the athletic fit, the academic fit, and the social fit. And, and they, I think they've scored well checking those boxes.
0: I would agree. Going back to Coach Bennett and, and then on to Bo, of course, and then Coach Guard the character that they bring in is is seems like second to none compared to some of these other universities that are on the, the big time level.
1: And I would go back Keenan to, to Barry when he was coaching and it became really noticeable in bowl games. Um, Now he treated, you know, his, his competitive nature. Like if you have any of these fun events, um, you know, like the Lowry's beef Bowl at the Rose bowl, um, he wants his guys to win it. You know, <laughs> I want my guys to eat more than the other guys, you know, but he also like in news conference settings, you're going to present yourself. Well, um, you're going to have the, you know, if it's the golf shirt or whatever, if the, if you need a jacket and, and, and a collared shirt, then you're going to do that. And not every school does that uh, in, in bowl settings when they meet with the media, um, it could be, you know, some were a little sloppy. Quite frankly, uh, he wasn't going to have that. So it 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 might sound like a little thing, but uh, he didn't view it as a little thing. And, and you know, I, I think that that carried over. They the kids here, by and large, um, like I said, not you know, not always. I don't want to make them out to be perfect, but I think by and large, uh, they present themselves you know, if it's a formal. Uh, interview session or maybe more importantly interactions with fans uh, in that type of thing Uh, I I think the people who are there walk away with a smile thinking you know this this is a pretty good group of players.
0: So what are your thoughts on being granted the extra year of eligibility and you know some of the guys deciding to move on and brad deciding i'm coming back
1: yeah yeah well i'm, I'm glad that brad is coming back and, uh, and i know that opinions especially outside of wisconsin will vary about that but brad <laughs> brad's a guy I, I think very highly of. I, I think he's probably the classic case of if he's on your team great if he's not you well know, he's the guy that you, you can't stand right but <laughs> it, he's one of those i've gotten to know over the years and um my wife and i do not have a daughter but if we did uh, we would be perfectly happy if Brad. <laughs> say, if you want to date? You want to date Brad? Go ahead. Uh, sure. I just think he he's that good of a kid. I I I think with with what we have all been in dealing with, and we've certainly dealt with more important things over the last year than athletic eligibility. Um, but I think if it if it fits for both sides, uh, I think it's a good thing um, to be a super senior, as they call it. Uh, to, get that, to get that extra year because um, – and I would tell you this, Tukin, in the case of, of Brad specifically with basketball, of the three sports that, that I have called over the last year, uh, baseball, college football, and college basketball, the lack of fans in college basketball to me has been the most noticeable um, just because of the in- intimate atmosphere. And I think in the Big Ten, people on the outside talk about the regular season doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. Um, to, to fans who are in those arenas – uh, when, when the Badgers go somewhere, they've been good for a while. That's a big deal for, for Illinois or for Minnesota when the Badgers are there. And, and the same here in, in Madison when Michigan State comes to town or, or you know, whoever's hot in a, in a given year, Michigan, that matters. And there have been a lot of great moments, um, first at the Fieldhouse and then obviously for the last 20-plus years at the Kohl Center. So uh, I think Brad's one of those guys who really feeds off of that, 17,000 for you. Or against you. I think one way or the other, um, he's not one of those guys who was digging all the cardboard cutouts in the <laughs> arenas this year. So I think it makes sense uh, as long as it makes sense for, for both sides uh, for a right. player to, to, to come back and, and take advantage of that extra year.
0: But I feel like his leadership, bringing in those young freshmen and sophomores along, I think will be, it'll help them tremendously.
1: They have prided themselves here for a long time. And I think uh, you could probably say this about a number of sports, but the ones that I deal with daily, football and men's basketball, you hear the word culture a lot. And coaches have a way that they expect things to get done, and that's great. But around here, the upperclassmen show the way to the younger guys. And and to have Brad, it's a a lot of experience, walked out the door. At the right. end of this past season, so to have Brad back with you know with those young guards or the team in general, I think is very important.
0: So, what do you enjoy more, calling a Rose Bowl
1: game or a Final Four? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How about that? How about yes? It's uh, I mean both are the both are the best. Uh, they 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 really are. They I mean it, it's hard to pick one there. But when you when you're talking about the Final Four. Um, the nerves I guess go up more because that unless you're playing in that final game of the season the ending is sudden you go to the Rose Bowl and unless you're in the college football playoff that that's your final game Uh, when the Badgers were there against Oregon uh, a little over a year ago now you knew that was the last game of the season in basketball the only time you know it's going in it's your last game is if you're playing on Monday night uh you know for for the national championship so um they're they're just there's something about it with with college basketball that that probably gets the heart pumping during the game more than most
0: well do you think it's the the three weeks of the tournament the build-up of making it to the final four and then yeah that that whole three week is just to me that's my favorite time of the year
1: yeah it is and it kind of goes back to you know a lot of this is when a lot of casual fans come in i i i think and I'll always maintain the regular season, means a lot. It means a lot if you can win a Big Ten championship, and um, a lot of folks don't view it that way. But, yeah, the three weeks of, of March Madness, it's, you know, every so many teams have moments, right? I mean, this year with we saw it with Loyola Chicago again, Abilene Christian, uh, other examples of, of teams that that get that first-round upset or maybe punch through to the Sweet 16, or we've seen enough examples uh, over the last 10, 15 years of, of, you know, VCU, of George Mason, Butler, uh, a couple of times uh, getting into the Final Four, Butler getting to the title game. Um, it's we generally know that there's a handful of teams that you figure are above the rest but there's enough good storylines along the way that really keeps us entertained. And look, if you get to the final four, there is a good chance that you had to squeak by at least one team along the way. And in the case of the Badgers, especially in the 15 season, I mean, they were facing, you know, it seemed like one blue blood after another. Oh, for and, sure. And, and every game was as Dick Bennett would call it a knuckle buster. Cause you're just clenching your fist. Cause it's going right down to the wire uh, it's, uh it, it can be nerve-wracking, but it's also a reminder that you're alive to, to be able to witness <laughs> exciting basketball like that.
0: Well, it seemed like they were playing Oregon and North Carolina and Arizona. It was like, you name it, that was the, the elite of college basketball.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in, in, in 14 when they beat Arizona, that was out in Anaheim and the game went into overtime. But uh, it was I don't think it was ever more than a two-possession game in the second half for sure, but it was just airtight all game long, and when you know what's at stake, uh, it it just added to the drama, and it was was really great theater.
0: So getting to that championship game against Duke, I was actually fortunate enough to be at the game, and we went to the team hotel after they beat Kentucky. (laughs) What an atmosphere that was.
1: Yeah, it, it took me, when I walked in the door, I felt like it took me about 20 minutes to get to the elevator. I mean, there were people. It was just a crush, right? The, of humanity. They did a good job. They kept the players protected, and they were able to save yes. and and you know with their uh, with the cameras and their phones, they were able to take some pictures or some videos. But it was it was quite the it was quite the scene. Um, it was a great game. I think most people who observed college basketball thought that Wisconsin was capable of beating Kentucky. This wasn't the basketball version of the of Miracle on Ice, um, but it was. You know, everybody knew what happened the year before. The Badgers desperately wanted to play Kentucky again. They got that chance. And um, one of the great moments that, that I've had a chance to witness with Wisconsin basketball involved one player in, a, in an offense to defense sequence. Sam Decker hit a step back three for the lead, and then he took a charge at the other end of the floor And Sam, I love him, but taking charges was not a big part of his portfolio. (laughs) But he picked a great time to draw one in the Final Four.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, well, Frank, I mean, he had an awesome game too.
1: Yeah, he was the best player in college basketball that year. He uh, he just did things that we don't expect to see from seven-footers. You know, he could put the ball on the floor, great footwork. Uh, really developed the offhand as his career went along. Um, that was, a, you know, Bronson Koenig, uh, Gosser with kind of the glue to it all. Uh, Duye Dukin hit some big shots coming off the bench for him. Obviously, Nigel was, was big. That was, you know, we talk about teams that are lovable, and that team was. I think everybody embraced them around here. But they were also really good. Uh, you know, Frank's the, the one guy right now in the league But Sam's been in it, Uh, Nigel, Duye. I mean, there's been some NBA-level ability. And no matter how long you stay there, if you get there, you have beaten long odds. And and that was a team that was very, very talented.
0: So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk uh, Milwaukee Brewers again. You were just out in San – or not, you weren't out in San Diego. They were out in San Diego, and they, they swept a team that everybody was kind of picking as the hot team to, to win out there in the West. What, what are your thoughts on the team right now?
1: Well, right now, you know, they're doing a great job of, of keeping their head above water without Lorenzo Kane, without Christian Yelich, without Colton Wong. Uh, Luis Arias uh, had to come out of the game uh, after hitting his home run on Monday night. Uh, so you have guys like Billy McKinney and you got Jace Peterson, uh, to name a couple who have stepped up and then they were major roles. Both of them hit a couple of home runs in the series. Uh, the bullpen, which has had some hiccups in the first few weeks, uh, they gave up nothing five hits, no runs. And they're, they're striking out guys left and right. Uh, it, it was, it's really fun to watch JP fire rising right now. I mean, anytime you get one of your own, so to speak, you can move yes. the balls and, uh, Stevens point, uh, UW Stevens point guy. Uh, but he's good. And he was put into uh you talk about a high leverage spot. He was put into <laughs> it uh, on, uh, on Wednesday afternoon, bases loaded one out in a two run game and he gets, he gets back to back strikeouts. Uh, so there, you know, you want to get these frontline guys back and it, you know, there looks like Colton's going to come back. And I think, you know, the other, other guys, it sounds like they're, they're on their way. But in the meantime, I think they're, they're showing that they have some pretty good depth, you know, guys who know what they're doing out there in McKinney. Uh, Peterson is a veteran, um, you know, it's so other, other part Tyrone Taylor. Now there's going to be some shuffling, obviously, when, when these guys come off the injured list. But uh, I think they've, they've done a very, very good job of, of just not only keeping their head above water, they're in first place in, in the NL Central. Right. But we're still in April. So it's, uh, you, don't, right. you don't win anything in the first month, but you could sure as heck dig yourself a deep hole. And this right. team has not done that.
0: Well, even I had a chance to get down to the game against Pittsburgh on Sunday, and a guy like Vogelback had a couple of home runs.
1: Yeah, that's uh, you, I, we were talking about that this week. I, I don't know if there's a guy who has a more easy swing, who can hit the ball eight miles, like you know, because he's you know, he looks like he could bench press American Family Field, right? He just <laughs> pretty he, he much could, he could be a, a Milwaukee favorite if he can you know continue to make some contact, and he's tried to make himself. It sounds like just, more than just an all or nothing hitter. Uh, in baseball right now it's a lot of home runs and it's a lot more strikeouts Uh, he's trying to find a way to put the ball in play with with some more regularity he's so darn strong um that you know he doesn't have to spin himself into the dirt swinging like javi baez or carlos gomez when he was a Brewer. (laughs) just you know get the bat out there uh and barrel it up and you're in business so he's a he's a fun guy to watch and And I think he's been good to have over at first, too, while Keston Hira tries to figure out some things at the plate. Um, He had a tough year last year. A lot of guys, a lot of really good players had tough years uh, at the plate last year. But Keston still hasn't quite gotten things in order. And as flat line as he seems to be, we thought um, in, in San Diego he was starting to wear it a little bit, and it's only natural. But I think the guy's too good. Uh, to continue to struggle like this so when when he gets going and you get these other guys back then you got an offense that might be able to do some damage to people
0: well and the starting pitching has been absolutely incredible
1: oh, it's been ridiculous I mean it's it's unrealistic to think that they can sustain this I mean I think going into the year the, the organization felt good uh, about its pitching and it felt good about its defense and when you look at the rotation especially the top of it with Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns but uh, you know, when the going into the series, the starter with the the quote worst ERA was three one four. You know, if that's, that's the worst, I mean, you know, <laughs> Burns is doing stuff that starters never have done to begin a season with the forty strikeouts and no walks. Woodruff uh, is electric. Peral, and then they've got the mix. You've got you know guys who can rack up a lot of strikeouts, and you get Hauser and Brett Anderson who aren't so much into strikeouts. So they'll get they'll get a lot of ground balls when they're right. And then your fifth is Freddie Peralta, who gets a lot of strikeouts. Yes, he does. And he's not just fastball Freddie now. He's got the slider. Uh, He's got different ways to get you out. So, um, you know, can they sustain this kind of pace? Unrealistic. But you have to like the fact that you feel good going in, that at worst, those guys are going to keep you in the game and give you every chance.
0: Don't you almost think that? with the front end, like you mentioned, with Woodruff and Burns, where if you get into a seven-game series, those two can carry you?
1: Uh, I think they certainly can, Can you know, as much as you can carry with starting pitching the way it's um, used now. I mean, they'll get you – you can get you six and maybe into the seventh when you get into a short series, but that's where the bullpen – um, it's been encouraging. The, as we speak, the last couple of outings that Devin Williams has had, I thought Sunday he looked more like himself when he came out of the bullpen against the Pirates, and, and in the in the final game of the uh, of the Padres series, he made Fernando Tatis, who's a really good player who signed a monster contract, he made him look sick with with that ridiculous changeup that he has. So hater is hater, and then you get Fireyzen. Uh Suter has been good. They've got a good mix there. Um, so Ed Boxberger's been given giving good minutes too. Yeah, he has. Yeah. Good no,
0: innings, I should say.
1: He has. And, and you know, he he struggled a bit yesterday, but got a big strikeout, and then Fire Eisen cleaned up the eighth inning. But he's a veteran guy. There's, you know, Fire Eisen hasn't pitched much at this level. Uh Rasmussen hasn't pitched much at this level. You know, Devin Williams was rookie of the year last year, so it's not like he's a salty veteran yet. So if you can get help from You know, the way Suter works, he's been around. Boxberger, you know, led the American League in saves uh, five, six years ago. So guys, some guys who've been there, done that. Hader now has been there, done that for a little while. Uh, It's a good mix. I I think this team, uh, you know, I, I try to pump the brakes a little bit. But if you can pitch and you're not throwing the ball all over the lot defensively, you give yourself a very good chance far more often than not.
0: Okay, so you've been around uh, the Brewers now for what, six? Has it been six or seven years?
1: This is uh, whatever this year, year seven, year eight. I started in 2014.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna guess that you've built a little bit of a relationship with
1: Bob Euchre? A little bit, a little bit over the years, yeah. So- do
0: you have any interesting story or something you could tell about Bob?
1: <laughs> Stuff that I could tell?
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a podcast. So no, no,
1: no he's, <laughs> he just, he's one of the funniest, uh, not one of, I would say he is the funniest human being um, that I or probably anybody else would ever meet. Um, here's one that it's, it's not the jokester, Bob, but I can tell you a couple years ago, we're in Arizona, and it was the Hall of Fame weekend. Now, Bob normally doesn't travel, but he was on the trip. This is, you know, mid-July. Um, and he's got a place out there, so I think he wanted to check on it, And but he was out working the series. So we're getting uh, – there's two buses that go to the ballpark. One is, is primarily a player's bus that leaves the hotel extra early, and then the broadcasters get on in like three, three hours. We'll get to the ballpark about three hours before. So we're – so it's, um, you know, Schroeder, it's uh, Sophia Minert, it's, uh, you know, Jeff Levering, Lane Grindle, and, and Uke, and Dan Larea, team vice president who handles all the, all the work with travel. And all of a sudden, you know, we're talking with Uke, and then his, his cell phone rings, and he holds up, and it's, it's Johnny Bench. He holds, he's got Johnny Bench on the phone. So Johnny Bench wanted to say hi to him for a few minutes, and then he hands off the phone to Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson wanted to say hi for a few minutes, and then he gave it to uh, to Bud Sealy. Uh, Bud wanted to say hi, and then uh, I, I want to say Hank Aaron, uh, rest his soul. One of the great yeah. human beings, not just players, one of the great human beings that the game has ever will ever have. Uh, and it was just, it was one after the other uh, of you know Hall of Famers, uh, you know the best of the best in baseball, and the rest of us were looking at each other on the bus saying. I don't know about you, but I'm not beating that today. know I'm, I'm not. I don't have this laundry list. of Hall of Famers that's going to be checking in on me this afternoon. But that told me that uh, these guys thought that they're they're all in Cooperstown, um, you know, just celebrating the the next Hall of Fame class. Uh, but they knew Yuke wasn't wasn't there. Obviously, they knew he was out in Arizona, and and they thought to call him just to say hi and. You know, they, they check in and they cackle and they wisecrack, bust on each other. Uh, but that tells you not only how much people like him and for his funny stories, but it's how much they like him personally and respect what he's meant to the game. And I, I thought that was, that was a pretty cool moment. Humbling for the rest of us because our <laughs> list of uh, people wanting to say hi probably will never be that impressive, but it was impressive to watch.
0: Yeah, that is pretty cool. All right, so I have one more thing for you before I let you go. We always do a top three segment, and I thought for you the best that I could come up with was: what is the top three venues that you've called the game at
1: outside of the home uh, of the? Uh, home, yes, home, outside, city, home outside of Ina.
0: camp and uh, camp yeah, Randall The
1: best venue, and for me, it's not particularly close. Is the Rose Bowl? Um, for you know, growing up watching the game and thinking this is a painting, especially when you get to the end of the third quarter. The sun's starting to set. Just the view off the San Gabriel Mountains. Uh, The last time the Badgers were there, I actually made a point during that break of taking a little video off my camera. Of you're just kind of panning the stadium, and it's just you you get the right day, you get a you know sunny day, and the sun starts to set. Uh, You can't beat it. And Rose Bowl games tend to be really exciting. I know the last few haven't gone Wisconsin's way, but they've all been either or. Even the games they won uh, were, were one possession games in the nineties. So that's my favorite for football. Uh, for uh, for football, for a uh, major league baseball, I would tell you Dodger Stadium. Um, you know, San Francisco is is wonderful. Um, I haven't been to Fenway, um, but I've been to Yankee Stadium, which it's, it's it's awesome. But there's something about Dodger Stadium that that I find extra special and for basketball um, a chance to be at a lot of really cool venues, but I'll go outside the big 10. The game didn't go well, but it was kind of a check the box place to go Cameron indoor stadium uh, home of Duke, uh, which I know is a bad four letter word around (laughs) here, but this was, um, this was well before the final four, the championship game matchup, but just, just to be in that environment and, and get a taste of the Cameron crazies, was, you know, the game was was not good uh, for the Badgers, but the atmosphere was pretty much living up to the filling of what you what you've always seen with the, the Cameron crazies.
0: That is pretty impressive. So one more question. I, I guess I lied to you. Okay, I know you don't ever really bash on the officials too much, but talk about that national championship game. Just a second.
1: Yeah, you know what? I, and I still, even in that game, I don't bash on them as much as many others do. Yes, there were questionable calls. Um, and I, I don't make much of that. the halftime CBS interview that Shashevsky had with the sideline reporter. Um, but, yeah, there were some either-or calls that, that went against Wisconsin. Keenan, what I, what I tell people, said, you know, if you're unhappy with that game, I get it. I understand it um but let's also understand that Wisconsin which shot the ball ridiculously well throughout the tournament did not shoot it well in that game and we oftentimes conveniently forget of a major break the badgers got in the Kentucky game on a on a putback a Nigel Hayes putback that was clearly after the shot clock expired
0: now, yes it was
1: and that was and, uh, the rule as it existed that year was that you couldn't review it because it happened with more than two minutes left in the game. The following year it was like the Nigel rule. The following year, if you make a shot and it's either or with the shot clock, you can review it um, in that case on the spot, uh, but they didn't. So that was a pivotal play in that game that, that still helped set the table for the, for Sam to do his step back three, but, Um, The one thing I would say about the officiating that was really disappointing to me, though, in the Duke game, and it wasn't so much an and one that Grayson Allen got uh, or or they call it the other end that the Badgers didn't get. It was the um, the forever review of the, the ball that went out of bounds and you get the national the national coordinator of officials. Who, now, the replay was tough to see, right? It, 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 I understand. I right. hated the length of time, but I understood it. But when you get the national guy saying that, you know, he just saw another look here, and it, it looked pretty clearly for the Duke player, but he didn't want to, in, I think as, as how he put it, I can't remember it exactly, but he didn't basically didn't want to stick his nose into a game that he was not officially working um if the idea of replay is to get it right <laughs> then yes maybe you should get it right now they were still going to have to make shots there was you know they think they, they were down five maybe at the time uh whatever it was it was close uh that to me when you know we're getting on the bus to go home the next day and thinking whoa, whoa really um uh, but i think all in all i i i uh, younger Matt used to be pretty bad about officiating bait, uh, you know, baiting officials like that. Um, older <laughs> Matt doesn't want to do that because I think it, it sounds like sour grapes. And if I'm ready to go to school, good idea to do that. But that lack of communication on the tipped ball out of bounds was disappointing.
0: All right, I, I knew I couldn't get you to bite too much on that.
1: <laughs> Actually, they stunk and <laughs> just every break in the world. So there, I said it. No, I'm- <laughs> I'm
0: well, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, out of your busy schedule to join us today,
1: Matt. I appreciate it, Keenan. Take care. Right.
0: And now here's a quick message from Anchor. And that brings us to another conclusion of an episode of Courtside with Keenan. I would like to thank our guest, Matt LaPay, for being so very generous with his time. And also, if you have comments, I would love to hear from you. Email at courtsidewithkenan at gmail.com or make a comment on any of our socials at Courtside with Kenan Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and have an awesome day.
1: He'll hoist one up. He hit it! Big blast for three! Let's play five more minutes in Madison! It's no good! It's no good! And I can't believe I'm going to say it! The Wisconsin Badgers have punched their ticket to Texas! They're going to the Final Four! And the Wisconsin Badgers have made it to Monday night! right side shooting for the win got it got it brunson tating at the buzzer new york city the badgers are coming your way